Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks the USA soccer guy is the most important American in football. My name is Cameron McDonald and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. I think uh, somewhere in the world, Stan Kroenke is reeling at that first comment. Um, the FA Cup final this past weekend saw Leicester beat Chelsea to win the competition for the first time in the club's history. And what a better moment to have the fans back in the stadium. You can really see what it meant to them. We'll be looking at that game and what it, amongst other selected games, can tell us to expect ahead of the Champions League final. Firing up the management carousel, reports have suggested that Zinedine Zidane and Andrea Pirlo are likely to leave their respective clubs at the end of the season. And just like when they played, there will surely be competition to pick them up this summer. Lastly, the fallout from the Super League continues with a parliamentary petition launched today calling for the appointment of an independent regulator of English football. As always, timestamps are in the description and let's start off by talking about that team that won the FA Cup. Yeah, lots to talk about today and of course where better to start than with Leicester. Um, winning the FA Cup, as you mentioned there, for the first time in their history, winning it with the fans back in the stadium, there was that lovely narrative. Um, and before we sort of look at the game, I just want to talk to you about, you know, this is Leicester now having won another really, really major piece of silverware. It's the second most important competition in, you know, in the UK for most people. Some people would even say it's the first because it is sort of the oldest competition in the history of the sport. Um and it sort of begs the question, Leicester City have won this FA Cup now, and they won the league back in 2015-16, which is a lot more recently than some of the other clubs um, that I'm about to mention. Did Leicester, in their own existence, do, does that just invalidate the big six narrative? Because this is another big win for them. Yeah, I mean, look, I kind of think the big six have been dead for five years. I mean, we've seen any number of, of big clubs drop off at any one point. You know, Manchester United have finished um, outside of the top six. Spurs consistently finished outside the top six now. Arsenal, Chelsea have all dropped out of the top six in recent times. Liverpool have had dodgy seasons here and there. And yeah, I, I definitely personally like to think that we've moved beyond the top six as, as just kind of being the, the total, all and everything of English football. I think the reason that Leicester are interesting for that, though, is that a lot of people will look at, say, for example, I don't know, when Chelsea are having a bad year, when they finish 10th, for example, or Arsenal this season, for example, when they're, you know, probably going to finish somewhere between 8th and 10th, people are sort of okay looking at them as a, as a top six size relative to maybe like an Everton or a West Ham who finished above them, because if you average out that league position, they would do better than them over that period. But I just don't think that's necessarily true of Leicester, is it? I mean, especially over the last few years, they have been every bit as successful as pretty much every other English club except for Man City and very recently Liverpool but in, in just English football if we you know ignore European football for a second Leicester have won the league and an FA Cup so there is there is you know successful as anyone really um and so it does make me wonder you know is are we going to see a shift away from it much the same way that we saw a shift away from sort of the big three narrative to being a big four narrative and then a big six narrative is it now going to be the big seven or is that going to be the thing that makes people go like okay this is just a bit ridiculous like there are a lot of good teams in the Premier League. That's what makes it the Premier League. Yeah, sure. I mean, I kind of think, like, personally, it just feels quite an arrogant phrase to call them the big six. And we've definitely seen the backlash of that in, in the fact that these clubs jumped at the opportunity to kind of do everyone dirty and join this European breakaway competition. Um, so, personally, I kind of feel like you can only call it a big four, a big five, a big six, whatever you want to call it, if six teams consistently like occupy those six spaces but it just changed slightly. So if it if it is the case that Man U, City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Spurs and Tottenham are always the top six, but they're all mixed up. So sometimes Chelsea wins, sometimes Arsenal wins, sometimes Liverpool win, then, then yes, that's legitimate. But that's just obviously so far from the case these days. I mean, Leicester are not the only side that are going to finish in the top six that aren't traditionally considered top six. West Ham as well will, will very likely do the same. And, and they have played like a top six side this year so yeah I, I think it's outdated looking at the actual game itself um I mean just some of the stuff that came out of this game was so so interesting so amazing the classic sort of magic of the FA Cup stuff that we always get coming out obviously um we had the whole thing with um Kun v Vichai um who had been 63 this year and Tielemann scored in the 63rd minute which was one of those things that was just like the football and gods have scripted it again um and it was also very interesting to learn that Jamie Vardy is the first ever player to play in every single stage of the FA Cup from the preliminaries to the final because obviously he used to play down at and lower level that is still it's kind of weird that the FA Cup's 150 years old I can't believe there's never been a player who's done that before and yet of all men it was Jamie Vardy I know he is such a 
It's just one more thing that you can put in Jamie Vardy's CV of being like just the roguest, most incredible, like English dream footballer of all time. The, the everyman, yeah, which is crazy. There was one other really funny thing that I read about Jamie Vardy uh, this morning on Twitter, uh, and it was sort of people talking about... Um, what all the lesser players have been doing to sort of celebrate and the ones who had sort of stayed around on the pitch and the ones who'd had a couple of beers behind and, you know, all of them hugging the, the owner and stuff. And there was this one um, <laughs> account of Jamie Vardy that read, most of the squad went their separate ways afterwards and travelled back to Leicester with their families, with Vardy celebrating on the way home with some desperado beers in the car with his family. The forward would go to bed with his winner's medal round his neck, just as he did in 2016, and wake the next morning for a McDonald's breakfast. <laughs> it's just like it doesn't get more Vardy than that does it it doesn't it just doesn't get more like simple and like he's clearly not forgotten his roots or who he is with all this fame and success and yeah like you just how do you hate this man you, you just can't I mean the whole team's very likeable um looking at very some true. of the actual events in the game absolute banger from from Yuri Tielemans. I mean you were the one who you know maybe called this one out when you were saying last week uh, putting him in your team of season how good he is I mean just a perfect goal for a final, really. If it has to be a 1-0, let it be a 1-0 like that. Um, and another thing that you pointed out um, last week was how reliable he's been. I found out, uh, as a result of this game, only one player from any team in the Premier League has played more Premier League games than Tielemans since he made his Leicester debut, that being Kasper Schmeichel, who also had uh, an unbelievable game. So Leicester have all these really dependable players, and it really came through in this game, didn't it? It really did. And yeah, I think um, what was nice is that Tielemans kind of he came onto the scene when he was in Belgium from scoring some incredible goals with both his right and his left foot. And at the start of his Leicester career, he kind of he kind of re kind of categorized himself as a little bit of a of a workhorse midfielder, you know, someone who's willing to put the yards in, play balls, sit further back, and you know, not maybe score as many of those those incredible goals. So it's such a nice little cherry on top of his season to to score that. And as you said, yeah, Leicester have just been so consistently impressive despite yeah as we talked about maybe too much at this point um the amount of injuries that they've had um they've just always managed to maintain a certain level um which you just gotta take your hat off to it, it makes me wonder and it's a, it's a question i want to put to you because i was thinking about this today and i was like am i am i crazy is this fanciful what's the peak for this team because Leicester, as you mentioned there, have had a lot of injuries this season and they've still, they look like they're probably going to finish top four. And if they don't, they'll have sort of just had the sort of classic Brendan Rodgers disintegration. But they've been trying to work on that and may well finish top four. They've obviously won the FA Cup and they've done it with a squad that's been, you know, really, really heavily hit this season. When they're fully fit, what is the peak for this team? Could Leicester win the league again in the near future, do you reckon? I think there's a there's a decent chance they could. Yeah, I think they it won't be anytime soon unless there's another really strange season like the one that Leicester did win. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the key points are that I would say that the transition over the last five years for Leicester as a, as a football club and as a team is that they've gone from being a team with a couple of of really big superstars to just a really well rounded balanced squad, and you can see that based on you know mm. the players that have come in and gone out. So what's good about that is that I think that they're less likely to get hit by a couple of of big players getting yoinked out from under them and then suddenly they drop down the league. Um, And what's also good about that is that all of these players are incredibly young and have these massive upsides. So, yeah, I think think that if they are going to win the league, and by win the league, in my mind, I'm thinking if they are going to be the best team in England for a season like undisputed I think it'll be a couple of years before that happens but I think it's real testament to to what they're building that I think I could see it happening in three or four years I I was just thinking about it because a lot of the time the the popular rhetoric at the moment that's sort of been echoed by a lot of people and and, and us as well is sort of Man City obviously are the very dominant team at the moment and I think there's a good chance we have I mean they've won like four of the last five so we're going to have a a long reign of Man City but people keep looking at Chelsea and Manchester United and a very common adage you keep hearing is like oh if Manchester United can just sign like a striker in a defensive midfield or if Chelsea can just find a goal scorer that'll, that'll push them that little bit over the edge and they can really push Man City next season or some people say about Liverpool as well they say oh you know next season when they haven't got all the injuries they could really push Man City and I was thinking about it 
And I was thinking about, you know, obviously Leicester are a team that don't have as much financial backing uh, or, or firepower in the market as, as a Manchester United or a Chelsea. But when's the last time Leicester made an actively bad signing? Like something that was like a significant outlay that got them no return. I was thinking about it. Islam Slomani in 2016, maybe? It's the only really one that springs to mind as as someone that you think like that just didn't really work out. Um, yeah, they they've been incredible in the market. You've got to give so much credit to their scouts. You know the the way that they picked up these players as well, like Kante from a league de, um, you know Riyad Mahrez from was it like the third division of French football? Um, I think it was second. It was Le Havre, I think. Oh, got it. Yeah, but just just yeah, some outrageously good signings and. Obviously, you're going to have one or two misses. Um, and I guess the other part is like, these players have massive potential and have shown flashes of their brilliance, but they are not yet the finished products. Um, so as good as Kalecci Hinacho has, has, has looked this season, he I don't know if he's yet ready to lead the line for a full season now that Jamie Vardy is getting on in, in years. So, yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't be surprised if one or two of these players that look really good might not quite make the cut in a couple of years' time. But, yeah, they the Foxes have just been so good transfer-wise. And in, and also development. You've got to give credit to that as well. That's the thing, because it just feels to me like, you know, thinking about that that season they won the league, I think as amazing as it was and as much of a fairytale, there was a real sense of, like, this is an anomaly. But they've bounced off that and they've used that as, like, a stepping stone to just improve their team to a point where I'm like... If things keep going in the right direction, because as you mentioned, so many of those players are really young. You've got Ndidi, Tielemans, Madison, Suyunchu, Castagna. They're all 24 or 25. You've got younger lads like Harvey Barnes, Fafana, James Justin, who are all coming through. And then the other one, you know, the big question mark for me, and I think most people over Leicester, is what they're going to do when Jamie Vardy starts slowing down. And if he is, I think maybe we've seen a star of a successor emerging in a Hianacho. And even if he's not ready to lead the line next season, they have been playing that front too. So he can sort of wean him into the first team. And then when, you know, Vardy's ready to go, whatever that might be, he might have a successor perfectly trained. Yeah, true. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you can never really see the pathway to him being a great striker, but he's not there yet. So you can't already give him the accolade. Um, I think that... Yeah, this this is a really exciting side. I, I I love watching them, and they've got such an air about them. I think that's the main thing that I, I I feel like typifies Leicester when you think about them. And even you know, for example, Chelsea picked up Danny Drinkwater for for thirty million, and he just never looked like the player that he was at Leicester. There is just it's not just that they're cultivating players, but they also have I don't know some sort of really encouraging mindset about them like it's a really supportive club it definitely feels that way when you think of the way that they've approached things like this Kun Vichai um, disaster and and how you know you hear Brendan Rodgers talk about it and he really it really feels like Brendan Rodgers has has captured what Leicester City is about and he says like I've been really protective of that legacy that 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 family have left um, and it, it just seems like a club that nurtures people and encourages and brings the best out of them. And I still don't think, for example, that we've seen a Harry Maguire better than the one at Leicester. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a few players you could say that of. I think, you know, obviously you have players that have kicked on, like Riyad Mahrez would be the, the very obvious example. Um, but yeah, Harry well, Maguire... You say he's kicked on, but he's never had a better season. He's shown flashes that- of it. That's true, but I think just based on like how much we've seen him play, I think if you give Riyad Mahrez a thirty-eight game season, he would just be. I, th- I think he has got better personally, but it's but it's you know he he was made great by Leicester, um, so it's a bit of a moot point. But um, the uh, the other thing that was just really good to see was as you mentioned there, you you love to see a club that looks very nurturing. It's part of the reason why it's so hard to. I, I can't think of anyone who really has a, a hate for them when you see like their owner running on the pitch and hugging all the players and getting really involved. And it's definitely something that football fans. You know, with all the Super League stuff and even the non-Super League clubs, like I know Newcastle fans have had this issue recently, just really falling out of love with the forces behind your club. And so to see a real difference there of a force behind the club that it wants to be inside the club, wants to be literally on the pitch, hugging the manager and the players and all that stuff. It's just, it's refreshing. It's quite heartwarming. Yeah, definitely. And and like the whole narrative of the cup and the magic of the cup. And you do just feel like Leicester were destined to win this year. Like it just, it all came together for them, didn't it? It really did. Um, Let's have a quick guessing game uh, before we look at Chelsea, because Chelsea, it's an interesting one. Obviously, they lost this final, and I think 
how they lost this final can tell us a little bit about what we might expect from them in the Champions League final. But before then, a quick guessing game. Uh, I've got one for you this week. Uh, I was meant to have it last week, but missed out. So, my first clue is this player is the second most decorated Northern Irish player of all time. The second most decorated Northern Irish player of all time. Yeah. Second most decorated, so only one better than him. Um, He spent the majority of his career playing for Manchester United and even came through the United Academy. And he once made the British papers for stealing a taxi while on a club training trip in Barcelona. Okay, cool. Those are your clues. I'll let that let that one sit with you. And let's look at Chelsea and where things went wrong for Chelsea. Obviously, it's been such a weird two-week period. It feels longer than that. I don't know if it's just because there's been so many games or just because of how busy everything's been uh, in the last few weeks worldwide. But to think that this time two weeks ago, Chelsea were just about to play against Real Madrid. They beat Real Madrid and then beat Man City at the Etihad and then have lost to Arsenal and Leicester <laughs> in the next. It's like a front half of the week is great, and then the back half of the fortnight has just gone crazy. Yeah, it's weird. You almost wonder if, I don't know, maybe their their eyes have turned towards the um, just the Champions League. That's all they're focusing on. Or just mindset-wise, they haven't quite been able to continue to like maintain their mentality and like winner's mm. mindset for across all competitions. But it, it does feel like... Not that the wheels are coming off, because, I mean, the, the Chelsea momentum was incredible before this, but just that maybe they've come a little bit back down to earth and realised that, oh yeah, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah, I, I think it was one of those things as well, because what's, what's interesting when games like this happen is that like when you're winning, no one really scratches away at the surface and tries to figure out any details underneath. Like the narrative is Chelsea winning games, they're, they're going to be getting into top four, etc. But now that there have been these two losses, I think there is like... Not not a criticism of Tuchel because I think that's that's way too rash. But people have sort of been considering the style that he likes to play and some of the decisions he likes to make. So, for example, like a lot of people were pointing out that in this game, Tammy Abraham wasn't even in the squad, um, and you know, obviously being Chelsea totally score it, that was kind of a weird one because Timo Werner dropped another zero out of ten. Um, and, you know, a big part of the narrative when Tuchel was brought in was that he was brought in to bring out the best out of certain players, which kind of makes sense that he's trying to make Werner work. But I, I did kind of wonder, like, what is it with Werner specifically? Because when you think about all of the players that Chelsea have brought in, I think Werner has probably, I don't know if he's been the worst, but he's just had the most opportunity to show how bad he is. Havertz has shown some improvement, but he's sort of in and out of the team. He doesn't play consistently. Ziyech hasn't been very good either, but he's sort of in and out of the team, gets dropped sometimes. Werner has played so much this season and keeps not rewarding either manager who's done it for him that it just I just don't really understand the logic of it and I just have some some minutes so Werner has played 2,418 minutes this season he's only missed three games Kai Havertz has played less than a thousand a thousand minutes less 1,488 Ziyech has had 11 uh, 1,134 and Tammy Abraham has had 1,031 in that time Timo Werner scored six goals which is a goal every 408 minutes or every four and a half games and a big part of the reason why I think, you know, obviously this Tammy Abraham thing in this particular game was was pretty uh, glaring. But we also talked, both of us, last week about how good a season Mason Mount has had. And he built on a decent performance last season. He's really matured. He's built on it. He's been Chelsea's best player this season. Why has Tammy Abraham not been afforded the same opportunity after scoring 15 goals last season in the league? It's... I, I personally find it strange as well. It... You just wonder if, you know, maybe they just don't mesh. Some managers and some players just don't, like, see eye to eye um, for whatever reason. And it's not necessarily a criticism of, of the player or the manager. They just don't work. And it, I agree with you. It feels really weird just looking at it from the surface. You've got to wonder if there's something else going on behind the scenes, whether or not when Tuchel joined, he got told that he had to play Werner or had to, to make sure that, you know, Werner wasn't a flop or get the best out of him or... I would very easily believe that there was something else going on beyond just team selection because the way that Werner has been picked every single game, as you said, is just just quite strange. I mean, the other thing that I would add is that I feel like Werner has just always consistently flattered to deceive and always threatened to be on the verge of breaking out from his, you know, under his shadow from from his bad performances because he does he does tend to pretty consistently provide a decent amount for the team despite not getting on the score sheet and he does get a lot of assists and every now and then he does score a goal so I I just think I wonder if he's kind of just been teasing and teasing 
that he's going to go back to his best and, and Tuchel just keeps believing him. I think the other thing is, when I looked at the side that lost to Leicester, broadly, I think we can see that this Chelsea side is really good at counter-attacking football. Mm. And that's kind of what they've relied on this season. And it's worked for them really well. And Timo Werner is the ultimate counter-attacking player because he's always willing to to go beyond the lines. He's always on the last man. He's so quick and he's he's unselfish. So he's always happy to like square the ball and he's got a decent awareness. Um, but you know Chelsea can't just be a one-trick pony. They've got to they've got to build out other parts of their game. And Tuchel needs to find new ways to get this squad moving because clearly, like there are cracks starting to appear as seen in the Arsenal game and as seen in in the Leicester game. And I would say there are different problems presented in both games, but I do really think that either Tammy Abraham or Giroud should have started this game. That was a massive flaw. I think Ben Chilwell should have started this game because Marcus Alonso is really inconsistent. A lot has been made of the fact that, you know, he just decided to swap Reese James and Azpilicueta around. That was pretty bizarre. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I do just feel like he, he doesn't have an expansive plan for Chelsea. And that makes a lot of sense because they've gone from 0 to 100 in zero seconds flat. Sure, he probably thought he was going to have, you know, a little bit of time to sort of pick up the pieces and he's done such an amazing job that he's now put in these very high-pressure situations only having been in the job. He's only worked with these players for a few months. I I, I definitely take that point. But it, there, there just seem to be some weird decisions. And like you said, like Chelsea have that really, really great, um, you know, talent at counter-attacking football. Ironically, so do Leicester, though. So it was like two teams both looking at each other and they were like, you attack. No, you attack first. True, but I mean, at the end of the day, like, Leicester just better than them at because they've done it for longer. And it mm. was kind of like, I don't know if they were playing like counter-attacking chicken. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Leicester just played their game and they played it better. Chelsea didn't have answers to, to what Leicester were doing. And really, really, Chelsea only had a handful of half chances. There was one chance that, and I want to pick your brains for a couple of reasons on this, because there were there were two potentially questionable VAR decisions, um, and we'll get into whether they're right or wrong. But just before we do, though, we're going to talk about the Ben Chilwell goal that got disallowed. Now, I don't know if you agree with me, but I've watched Ben Chilwell score that goal. Ben Chilwell, who has played for Leicester since he was 12 years old and has been playing at Chelsea for one season, and he was like running around punching the Chelsea badge, and I was like, have some fucking respect, pal. Yeah, a little embarrassing for the lad, especially when his his former team won in the end. You, <laughs> I was just like, come I'm, on, man. Like, I don't know I, if I'm a... I know what you mean. I don't know if I'm a traditionalist or, or what the general consensus is anymore, but I definitely don't like to see players celebrate in that way against their old clubs. Like That just doesn't sit right with me. By all means, celebrate. Look, you've scored an equaliser in an FA, or at least he thought he had at the moment, uh, in an FA Cup final. Yeah, fantastic, go nuts. But it was like specifically the like punching the badge and all that stuff. I was like, mate, do you not like? Have you forgotten that quickly? <laughs> You're a real mercenary here. I know what you mean. All I can think is that like you know people just slightly lost their heads a little bit because the fans are back in the stadium. That's yeah. I mean, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna give him any sort of leeway, I'm gonna give him that. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but just at the time I was like, okay, mate, all right. No, but, I, um, I'm, I'm fully with you. I, I didn't enjoy it either. But um, so so the goals, I mean, so actually this, this is the other interesting thing. You were just talking there about how this is all sort of part, part of the same thing because um, Tuchel talked about this game as, as sort of Chelsea having bad luck and he called the Tielemans goal lucky. And I think, in a sense, that is true. It was a really, really great shot, but it was sort of a, a, a sort of circumstance. You're not going to see that every game, as you mentioned. Tielemans just doesn't really score that many goals, um, and it's the same with uh, the Chelsea game against Arsenal. Arsenal were extremely lucky. Though Jorginho was just in a charitable mood. Um, but the question I would ask to you, and the same thing with sort of Chelsea, were unlucky to get this VAR call potentially, um, and maybe they were unlucky that Leicester's there wasn't sort of a handball call in the build-up. If you're leaving yourself open to luck. Can your game plans be that airtight? Well, yeah, exactly. I completely agree with you. It's yes, they they messed up to allow a goal conceded, but if your best bet is like maybe scraping one goal a game, you can't be upset that you're losing them. And that has been the case for Chelsea for the last few months. A lot of their games have been very fine margins. And at the time, you look at Chelsea beat like West Ham 1-0 a couple of weeks ago in the league, and you go, yeah, that's a good result. West Ham are a tough team to get past. But then sometimes it's like, well, on this day, Chelsea might have a goal disallowed that's millimetres offside, and West Ham might get a penalty that's not quite all this. So it's it's playing quite fast and loose in an ironic, because in, in a sense, it's very, very um, 
cautious and and I think that was the first thing I remember saying about Tuchel when he came in that I was like he's quite tentative and sometimes it feels like Chelsea don't realize how good they could be because they're just sort of trying to play it safe well it's that and it's also just that I mean I would say probably that one of the luckiest games they've had is, was against Real Madrid which was that they wasted so many chances but still managed to just kind of scrape by and, and get the win in the end um, but that again like they left themselves so open even till the last minute, just by not taking the chances that they created for themselves. So, yeah, it's a young side. It's an immature side, I would say. It's one still, I hate this this idea, but it's one still trying to define itself. Is that, is that cheesy? No, I think I think it's it's more or less right. I think it's not even, they, they figured out one thing they can do well, and they're sort of clinging to that massively. But <laughs> push, really, push the they need counter-attack to... button. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they need to branch out, especially because, you know, looking at the Champions League final from this perspective, Chelsea have just lost against Leicester and Leicester are a great team, but no team in England and arguably the world right now is as good at punishing teams with one plan than Manchester City. Chelsea are going to find it quite hard to score. Obviously, they did score those two goals when Chelsea and City played in the league a few weeks back, but that was with City who were playing sort of back three and Ake and Laporte and it wasn't their sort of usual setup. In the final... I think Chelsea could be not even punished. I think it will be another low-scoring game, but Chelsea will have to come up with a new idea. Maybe it's starting Giroud. Maybe it's having Tammy Abraham come off the bench. But if they turn up like they did against Leicester, I, I just don't see any way they win the game. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it was, it felt telling that over the weekend, you know, City beat Newcastle four-three and Chelsea lost to Leicester one-nil. And it, the reason why I felt telling was because, from my perspective at least, both managers made some pretty weird decisions. Um, obviously, the main one for Man City is that he decided to play Scott Carson in goal. Scott Carson totally had a pretty good game, but, but Newcastle still scored three goals for the first time in I can't think how long. So, you know, I, I, I feel like it, it felt, at least to me, worrying for Chelsea and their chances of winning the Champions League that... Guardiola can make mistakes and it's still okay because they have such a wealth of talent across their squad and they and they also have had several years of you know building in the manager's plans whereas Tuchel's side still look nervous and still aren't able to execute plan A well enough let alone build a plan B and just just don't quite have that final cutting edge yet. Also, quite crucially, because you're right, both managers made some some questionable lineup decisions. I think the the big difference there, though, is that probably Scott Carson won't start the Champions League final, but Timo Werner might. True, and Jorginho might. And and as good as Jorginho yeah. has been, he was a fault for for both of the goals in both of the games we're just talking about. I also realised that I'm pretty sure Newcastle put three past West Ham in in April, so maybe it has happened before recently but still it felt strange that Man City had been so defensively solid and then they switched up their keeper and suddenly put three past them yeah I think it was just one of those games because they know they've won it they, I think they were just kind of like fuck it <laughs> basically yeah for sure but still I, the, yeah the fact that like Guardiola can just make the, the rogue decisions that he wants and get away with it and I don't really think Tuchel can yet well, I think well, it's funny you say that because I think realist. I think Chelsea's best part of victory is either um, either Timo Werner has been saving it all up for this one game and he has a Fernando Torres style, you know, performance, or what, what Chelsea need to basically hope for is the miracle of Manchester City defeating themselves. <laughs> I don't think I don't think there's a, really a way that Chelsea beat City in the final. I think they've just got to hope that City beat City and come out with some ridiculous game plan because Pep's like, haha, no one has ever won the Champions League final without a keeper. See, I, I actually disagree with that because I think that we've seen what Chelsea's flaws are and it's when you come across teams like Leicester City who also want to play counter-attacking football and then they're going to struggle. But City, if anything, are a lot more like Real Madrid and they're going to try and play expansive football. They're going to have a high line and Chelsea know how to play against that pretty well as seen by the fact that they already beat them last month. So I, I actually think it's not a bad matchup for them. Well, it's going to be an interesting game either way. I'm looking forward to it, and it's always good to have two English teams in the final. Um, looking at our management carousel, I always find this such an interesting topic because, I mean, obviously the transfer window itself is always great, speculating about which players are going to go where and how they'll improve the team. But the management sort of thing is it's a lot more of a domino effect a lot of the time. Like you'll have one, like we were talking about with Spurs the other day and how people were like, oh, like who's going to, is Nagelsmann going to manage um, Bayern Munich and who's going to manage Leipzig and what's the whole thing? And so again here, there's two managers that have both 
both left, uh, or, or sorry, are, are both rumoured to be leaving at the end of the season. And I'm just interested to see what that's going to do for the rest of the you know, the footballing world, because they're both fairly big names. One is definitely bigger than the other and has a better CV than the other, but both are names that I can see a lot of clubs being interested in. Um, and starting off, let's look at Zinedine Zidane, who, if he does leave, will have one of, if not the best CV on the market. Um, you know, maybe, Joseph, actually Joseph Mourinho's at Roma now, but, you know, three Champions League back-to-back and two La Ligas. Pretty impressive thing to, to walk into someone's office and slap that one down. Oh, it ain't bad. It, it really ain't bad. I mean, I think the main thing as well is that he hasn't really had any mistakes on his CV. Yes, he hasn't won everything always, but he hasn't had any sort of like big crashes out from anything. And he hasn't had any really serious falling out with hierarchies or key players. I just think, yeah, he, he probably does have one of the most stable CVs of any manager um, in a, I guess, a market of unstable managers and, and unstable managerial histories. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's a good. I like him. I I am excited to see him elsewhere. It, it definitely will be exciting. I, I mean, I, I would say the first thing, and interpret this how you like. You could say it's a good thing, a bad thing, an in between thing. That was our whole debate about Pep Guardiola. But the the very obvious comparison to Zidane is is Pep, and not just because they're both bald. Um, you know, <laughs> they both went to Barcelona and Real Madrid through the youth routine. So it wasn't like they'd started off at a different senior level club and got recruited. They started through the youth levels and were sort of. Zidane did get them to win three Champions Leagues back-to-back, but it wasn't like Real Madrid were a really anonymous side when he came in. A lot of those players, a lot of the key players, uh, like Sergio Ramos, like Luka Modric, had been there for quite a long time before he came. So it's one of those question marks where it's like, is he a really, really good manager, or was he just manager of Real Madrid? Or is it, you know, it could be both. It could be both. And look, I think, um, obviously, the Pirlo that managed Barcelona is not as good as so obviously the, the Guardiola that managed Barcelona is not as good as the manager that he is now, 10 years on, mm-hmm. having had all of this experience in, in the European top flight. So I kind of see it as like, he's passed the first test. Let's see what he can do now. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and then look, thinking about some of the places where we think he could go, um, I've got a couple of clubs I want to throw to you. I don't know if you've got any you want to throw back at me, but I'm going to throw mine at you and we'll we'll see if we think any of them are likely. I've, I've gone roughly from most to least likely. Um, and okay. the first one I think could be quite interesting and I could definitely see happening is if indeed uh, Andrea Pirlo leaves, Juventus. Um, they've had not a great year, which is part of the reason why Pirlo is reported to be leaving. Uh, they might be missing out on Champions League football. They are very potentially going to lose Cristiano Ronaldo. And Zidane is maybe one of those managers. Firstly, he played there. So, you know, he was legendarily a Juve, Juve player before he was a Real Madrid player. So they, they already have sort of an understanding of the club culture. And he's one of those managers that you could see them bring in as like a way to keep Ronaldo to be like, hey, remember the last time you we were in the Champions League? We've got this guy again. <laughs> Or just like bring in his mate. Yeah, true. I mean, I actually think uh, Juventus as being like the most likely place for him to go as well. For all of those reasons you said, it definitely fits the narrative of what I would imagine. And I think that he's an exciting young manager in the same way that Pirlo is, but he's more successful than Pirlo and, and he's definitely got more experience than Pirlo. So personally, with, with Juventus' squad, I think it could work really well because... They're in a transition period. They've got a couple of really old players that are coming to the end of their careers and they've got quite a few young players coming through. So, yeah, I think that this could work really well. And I also think it'd be a really good test for Zidane to see whether or not he actually does have the the chops to make it in the, the top flight. Yeah, because in a sense, Juventus is almost like the perfect middle ground. If you're leaving Real Madrid, it's kind of arguably a step down wherever you go in terms of the size of the club but Juventus are as 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 close as you can get really because they're still a massive club but they do also need that turnaround so I think it would be a really interesting test and something that I think would just be really really it would get a lot more people watching Serie A for sure if we had like Lukaku at the peak of his powers facing up against Zidane Juventus facing up against a young Milan that's getting better every season um so yeah that one's definitely definitely really good one that uh, I've actually got second on my list of four which is most likely maybe because the other two are even less likely um and this is a wild one so bear with me Spurs I mean I I actually of these two, I think Pirlo is more likely to go just because mm. he said that he wants English football and I think his profile is a little better for Spurs just because he's not a Champions League winner and I think Spurs is looking for a, a new identity and Pirlo could offer that. I think I think it's 
not quite ambitious enough for Zidane. But that being said, I actually think that he could do quite a decent job at, at Madrid. Uh, sorry, at um, Spurs. But it's hard to say because, I mean, obviously, like, Bale's there and they didn't exactly get on famously. Um, and Harry Kane has now said that, confirmed that he wants to be leaving. Um, but I would love to see, for example, what he would do with Deli Alley. Um, but would... so, so the, the Kane thing is another one for me, though, because it's like we see it all the time with players when a club is like, oh, you know, this player wants to leave. So we're, like, I think one way that Spurs could get Harry Kane to leave would be to sort of make a committed, like, right, we're going to sign this player, that player, this player, that player, surround you with a team of champions. Another way would just to be get, to go, we're going to get Zinedine Zidane to manage you and what a chance to work under him. Then, you know, Harry Kane is obviously going to have massive reverence for him. I also think that, you know, Spurs' most recent manager, Jose Mourinho, shows that they do have the ability and the willingness to pay that top managerial salary and that they can draw in a big name. It's a little bit different because obviously Jose Mourinho is maybe sort of getting up there and is, is not so glamorous as, as some as it used to be. But it still does show that, you know, Spurs can attract big managers. It's true, they can. I think, um, personally, the way I always see it is, if I'm a player, I want to work under, A, an incredible manager that has a really good long history, and or B, a, a manager who played in the same position as me and I can learn a lot from. So, for example, if I'm Mason Mount, say, I either want to be working for someone like Carlo Ancelotti, who's got this incredible career and I, I believe can nurture me because he's nurtured so many players before, or I want to go with someone like Frank Lampard, who I can I can actively learn things from because he plays the position that I want to get better at. So Harry Kane, I, I don't really think Zidane offers either of those for him because he's not a seasoned veteran that has like a... Yes, he's got a good CV so far, but he doesn't have a guaranteed track record by any means. He's only managed mm. one club. And he also doesn't operate in his position. So I, personally, I don't really agree with that. But obviously if it came along with other things such as, you know, a new influx of players and things like that, then yes, collectively, how could it not become a kind of a swaying factor for him? Yeah, I just think with like all the play all the managers we were talking about last time and, you know, no disrespect to your Graham Potters and your Scott Parks and Reddy House, but it just it just felt a bit like Spurs have had this idea that they're gonna become this club that wins the league every now and again and maybe wins the Champions League and look how good we're doing with our new stadium and if they've they've sort of gone from Pochettino to Mourinho, which obviously was a downgrade, but you can see how at the time they thought it was an upgrade. So then to go back down, it feels almost like you're giving up on that project rather than cracking on again and going, right, didn't work out with Mourinho, let's try it with this. You know, younger Mourinho, basically, Zidane, who's you know, at the very start of his <laughs> career and, you know. So the reason I actually kind of disagree with that is because I do wonder if this current Spurs model doesn't work. And I do wonder if the idea of Mourinho was just to try and, and build on what Pochettino had already built but I don't think that worked and I don't think that Zidane is either the, the player the person to do that so personally I would almost say that if they choose to try and bring in Zidane that's them trying to keep like bashing something that isn't quite working I think they need a rebuild I think Hurricane needs to be allowed to leave I think they need to invest in a young squad you know get a good core spine through the team get a really good identity and build with someone for the long term. I don't think Zidane's going to join Spurs for five years, let alone 10 years. And I think that's what they want. I think they need stability. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. But I can also see just like, the Mourinho signing was just not what Spurs needed either. But they were like, oh, look, like, what a big name. If we have a big name in our dressing room, that means we're a big club. And following that same logic, I could see them, you know, maybe their ears have pricked up hearing these rumours. Yeah, um, no, look, I get the logic, but I just don't think it's, it's good logic. I don't. Th I think that oh, makes sense as an argument. Um, but it, but it could happen. <laughs> no, I agree. I don't think it'd necessarily be you know the smart way to go. But I could also see them thinking, ah, um, the next club I've got is my. Um, this is one that I I have put on my third least likely, just because it would mean that this the manager who's currently there would be sacked really really quickly. 
The only reason I've put it in is because this club is maybe the most brutal for sacking its managers other than Chelsea, uh, and that's PSG. Um, TalkSport reported earlier this month that if PSG lose Ligue 1 to Lille, uh, Pochettino may be facing an early exit just six months after taking the job. Um, apparently, this all started given the fashion that they were knocked out of the Champions League quite you know, unceremoniously, 4-1 over two legs, players throwing a tantrum, has just convinced him that he's not he's not the kind to take them forward. Um, and while that might sound kind of crazy and very, very you know, um, premature, you got to bear in mind that Thomas Tuchel, when he was managing PSG, not only took them to the Champions League final for the first time, he won the league both seasons he was there, and he's to date has the highest recorded win percentage in league guard. And they still went, nah, mate, it's not working out. So, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, I-, I could actually see Zidane at PSG because he definitely fits the model of like d- dynamic, exciting icon player manager yeah absolutely I actually think it could be quite fun again I don't think it's what PSG need but it could be a nice way that they continue to keep rebranding themselves as I guess like a relevant side that seems a cruel to them but I do feel like all they want to do is win something in Europe and Zidane has ostensibly won things in Europe yeah, he's he's like the guy you want to call around if you want to win the championship. In much the same way that Unai Emery was like marketed as the Europa League guy. Zidane is just like the bed of the Champions League guy. Also, I think, you know, PSG have made a real... Remember when they signed Kylian Mbappe and they had this whole thing where they were like, oh, like the best French players in the world want to play for the best French club. They don't want to play for Real Madrid or anything like that. I can see them, again, using much like the Spurs, using the same logic of being like, oh, the best French manager wants to come to the best French club. And that's like part of their brand of like being like having that French identity. For sure. No, no, definitely. I mean, okay, so I can see it happening, um, but I think it's unlikely. It would just, it would mean Pochettino getting the most brutal, like even worse than Liam Rosenio that we talked about last week. Just so brutal, just six months just to sack him. But I could see it still happening, even though it's savage. It would be pretty crushing, wouldn't it? Um, so no, so the, the one that I want to put to you, which I think could be quite fun, and again, it maybe speaks to... Um, what we would like to happen, which is him take on a more ambitious project and, and see how far he can get with a side that's um, not quite in the in the top upper echelons of European football. I'd love to see him go to Bordeaux. Another former club of his. That'd be really interesting. Uh, would that be... I mean, it'd be great if he wanted to sort of like move home and sort of build stuff up and, and, and you know, take his old club to big things. Would that maybe be too much of a big step down just in terms of, I'm thinking just like managerial salary at, at the very least? It definitely could be, but I, I always wonder how much these people are motivated by salary by the, by this point. Like, he's a multimillionaire. Does he need that much cash? I, I recognise that he's used to a certain level of income and maybe to not have that would be worrying, but I wouldn't really worry too much about that. I just think that even if he took... I mean, Bordeaux are currently 14th in the league with one game to go. They don't have a very exciting squad the only thing that would attract him would A, be the challenge and B, the nostalgia. But I would love to see him even just stay for like two or three years and maybe get them from 14th to like finishing just outside the the top four or five, you know, maybe like ready to compete in Europe and in a much better place as a club with a couple of really good young players coming through. I, I think I would love to see that as a next stepping stone and then maybe in a couple of years time, a top manager position is available for him and one that suits his station. This is more kind of thing if, if Juventus doesn't quite work out for whatever reason, because I don't really see any other club working for him at the moment. Yeah, it's kind of a weird one, isn't it? Because he's not been, I mean, he, he hasn't officially announced he's leaving yet. So there's a speculation, but he, he hasn't been sacked, but he's just decided to walk away much like he did last time. So he might do what he did last time and just hang out for a minute and let someone else bomb the Real Madrid job and then be like, want me back on a bigger salary? Maybe, yeah. It was funny though, because I, um, I was reading the um, the reports about him leaving and they kind of said like, Zidane shut down claims that he would be leaving Real Madrid after they beat Bilbao 1-0 on Sunday. And then you, you listen to his quotes and he goes like, um, th- I think the exact phrasing was, how can I tell my players that I'm leaving the club at this stage of the season? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, te- that's not saying <laughs> that I'm not leaving. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I think actually my favourite place I would love to see him, just for narrative reasons, and the one which he's the least likely to go to because they've already hired a new manager to start at the end of this season and the beginning of the next, is Borussia Dortmund. Just because I love the idea that he becomes like anti-Pep. 
<laughs> that would be very funny. Yeah, every single club he goes to United after that. Yeah, it's Man U next. And also, to be fair, could you not see him at United? Just tell me that. Oh yeah, eventually. I mean, I think he'll he'll keep going round now to top top clubs, and and either he'll take a sabbatical, and you know maybe he will be sizing up the the Man City role, and you know if Pep leaves after they win the Champions League, or if he leaves in a few seasons, he'll take a sabbatical, and then it'll be one Baldy swapped in for the other. It could be. It could be. Um, he's going to have to develop some idiosyncrasies by then, so that he can. Uh have a full replacement of, of Pep's behaviour. Um, the last one I, I had that we probably won't need to spend that much time on because I don't think it's hugely likely, but it was just sort of an, another fun one. Another team that've had an unsatisfactory season. Most people assume that this club is going to continue with their manager, but I was looking at it today on uh, on the odds check thing that aggregates the odds from like all the major betting companies. And this manager is actually the second favourite on average to be the next manager to lose his job um, after Big Sam, that is. And that's Mikel Arteta. Arsenal has a very rich French tradition, lots of French players, obviously very legendarily a French manager. Could Zizou be appealed? Could that appeal to him as a destination? I think it could. Um, I guess in the same way that Tottenham could, in that it's a London club and it's got a big history um, and it's a project. So, yeah, it it could happen. I think um, I would say, obviously, like Spurs and, and Arsenal are less enchanting than some of the other ones we've talked about. But, yeah, why not? Um... If you're ambitious, it could be a cool project. I think we'd just love to see Zidane in the Premier League, wouldn't we? Um, we and the other manager, would, yeah, definitely. The other manager we'd also love to see in the Premier League would be Andrea Pirlo. Um, and this is a really interesting one because he has both said that he's fascinated by the Premier League and he really, he's really, really keen to come to England. And unlike Zidane, where he's managed you know, Real Madrid for, for three years and then plus another year and he's won the Champions League several times, he's won La Liga several times, Pirlo actually... I don't think it's entirely his fault that Juventus have done quite poorly this season, but his CV is not so strong that he couldn't go somewhere unusual, which I would, which really interests me because some of the teams I have to talk about, I just the idea of Pirlo standing on the touchline for these teams is just peak football to me. Um, yeah, see, see, I, I'm interested to hear what you say because obviously he said he wants to go into England English football and. I kind of was looking down the list of the Premier League and no one was really jumping out at me. To be fair, Arsenal again, I think that obviously Pirlo likes to play kind of total football and that's kind of what Arsenal also like to pretend to play. And I could see that being being fun, but also again, like I don't think that's right for Arsenal because they need they needed something a little bit more stable footing wise. Um, but who, who have you got in your mind? Well, it's okay. So, so bear with me on some of these, and and just bear in mind when I say these that Everton is managed by Carlo Ancelotti. So just just keep that in your head. Okay, uh, is it is it Newcastle? Uh, not quite. Uh, the first one I've gone for is Wolves because there's been another report. This is the manager carousel going again. That Wolves apparently are already taking the precaution of looking for a new manager because they've had concerns that Nuno Espirito Santo might want to leave. Um, he was obviously courted by Arsenal reportedly before they hired Mikel Arteta, and he's been courted by Spurs. They've been looking at him and thinking about it, and so apparently the concern is, according to the Mail at least, um, that he's sort of thinking. Oh, Okay, well, I've had a good time at Wolves. This was my stepping stone. Let's let's take the next step. Um, I think the move for Pirlo would make a lot of sense for a lot of different reasons. Wolves have a good setup. They have like a, you know a good training facility, good youth coming through. So as a destination for Pirlo, maybe it would be even more appealing than somewhere like Spurs, where you sort of are arriving and the the entire house is on fire. Wolves have got a certain level of expectations, and I think they have the resources to achieve that um, when they have all their players back next season. And then the other reason is that Pirlo. You know, for what's gone wrong this season, the one thing that's been really, really good this season is creativity and goal scoring from wide. Federico Chiesa's come through and had a massively good breakout season, but Juan Cuadrado, who's played a lot as a right back and also right winger, has 16 assists this season. We've talked about how one of Wolves' biggest weaknesses is not being able to find goals from anywhere except down the middle, and I think that Pirlo coming in, showing his experience on being able to develop those wide areas of the pitch, could be a you know perfect puzzle piece fit. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. I, I did look at Wolves and initially I thought it could be a good fit just because Wolves have a great midfield and Pirlo would be a great... Man- I'd love to see Ruben Neves being managed by Andrea Pirlo, for example. And I think he'd get Morgan a lot of Jao Moutinho, for example. But I guess I kind of started to discount them just because, again, Pirlo wants to play this expansive football and I don't really know if that's Wolves' game. Um, but that is a fair point that they, you know, do need to start scoring some goals that are created from wide areas. And 
yeah, they've got a good striker to fulfill that role in you know Raul Jimenez and also you know their younger strikers as well. So to be fair, yeah, I could see that. I could see that happening. My other one is a little bit of a rogue shout, but again, just bear with me. Everton are managed by Carlo Ancelotti. Leeds are managed by Marcelo Bielsa. The superstar <laughs> managers come to the Premier League because of the Premier League. And this one, I would love. I would the the idea of this scene of of Pirlo wearing like a, a scarf, maybe with like not not like a club scarf, but he's like somehow stylized it, and he's standing on the touchline at Selhurst Park. <laughs> because Roy Hodgson is another one who is apparently, he's out of contract at the end of the season. Apparently they're not going to renew it. They're going to announce that in the next few weeks. Um, And supposedly at the moment, Frank Lampard is the favourite to take over the job at Crystal Palace. How about Italian Frank Lampard? (laughs) No. (laughs) I mean... No shot for you. (laughs) To be fair, again, like, they've got got a bad squad. Think about it. Frank Lampard has gone off to Chelsea. He's managed them for a season and a half. It's not really worked out. Chelsea have these huge expectations because they're a club that ideally would be winning the league every single season in, in Roman's mind. And there's there's no such thing as a rebuild season. Juventus, very similar. The Agnellis were like, well, look, we've won the league nine years in a row. I don't accept that this year Inter have just been very, very good. <laughs> and like <laughs> Juventus are only two point, uh, sorry, three points off second as it is. They couldn't actually finish second because I think Milan and Atalanta play each other. But... They could, you know, it's not like they're miles off the pace. And apparently the, the rumour is that Pillar's going to get sacked. Um, so I think, you know, they've had very similar fortunes. And if Crystal Palace are considering Frank Lampard, why not Andrea Pirlo? I mean, <laughs> is is Luka Mijelovic ready for his breakout season at age 30? <laughs> I hope so. Managed by Andrea Pirlo. Do you know what, actually, the one thing that did surprise me that I was looking at the table the other day is just like the narrative around the seasons and is definitely that Palace have had a bad season and Villa have had a good season, uh, like an incredible season. And I was looking at the table. Obviously, Palace beat Villa this, this week. There are only five points between them. That's not a lot. Yeah, I think, I think to be fair, like Palace, though, this season have more they've, they've been an even keel which is good for a club like palace a lot of the time you'd rather that than you know flirting with relegation but they've kind of been around that sort of mid to lower table consistently whereas villa have sort of touched touched the clouds and now it's fallen away but people are still sort of still remembering like the high points that they reached for sure no it's it's just always funny to think like i i now i had in my mind at least the idea that villa were you know not just playing some great football and some really good attacking football but also getting those scrappy 1-0 wins and, and getting into that top eight. But yeah, they, they, I mean, they've dropped down to 11th and it was just interesting to me to note that when it comes, when the rubble settles and, you know, the narratives die down, at the end of the day, there is only a couple of points between them in the table at least. Yeah, and if Pirlo goes over there, it might be, a, it might be Crystal Palace or above Aston Villa. <laughs> well, you never know. As always... Um, we live in hope that a top manager or player will take up the gauntlet of joining a League One side and fighting their way to the top. But until then, we are filled with nothing but dreams. Um, dreams indeed. Um, moving into a bit of useless trivia, I've got one of those weird, weird things that's happened in football about one of your favourite players, no less. Go on. So, Brazilian forward Hulk, as you well know, has played across a number of leagues during his career. And he yeah. holds a rather bizarre and consistent scoring record across those leagues. In his five years playing for Portugal, for Porto, of course, he managed to score exactly 77 goals in all competitions for the club. In four years playing for Zenit St. Petersburg, where he moved, he scored exactly 77 goals in all competitions. And in five years playing for Shanghai in the Chinese league, he scored exactly 77 goals. Now playing for Atletico Mineiro in Brazil, he scored seven goals so far, with 70 surely to follow. See, I, I really just think this shows how good Hulk is, that he can just choose to score exactly how many goals that he'd like. <laughs> yeah, there's just no more. It's just like, I've, I've finished. You need to sell me because I've hit my quota. <laughs> yeah. See, it's funny. If you actually look at those uh, those games in China, he actually hit 77 goals in like the second game of this season and then just benched <laughs> himself. <laughs> it just said, man, it's like, I'm just not scoring at the other end, I'm, pal. I'm, I'm done, Gav. Take me off. Take me off. <laughs> Um, no, that is funny. Um, I I came across quite a quite a random thing this week, which I mean you may have heard of. This might be a thing, but I definitely hadn't hadn't seen it before. Um, obviously, Gary Neville's been in the news this week, which we will talk about coming up. But 
Did you know that Gary and Phil Neville's father is called Neville Neville? I actually, I actually did. That's the, the, not not great trivia, but it's su- it's actually such great trivia that that's what I, I held very dear to my heart. Yeah. First name Neville, second name Neville, middle name presumably Neville. I mean, yeah, probably. Also, also makes it kind of weird because like neither of them now can name their son after his after their dad. Can they not? There's a rich history of, of people named Neville Neville in their family. If you want your son to get bullied within an inch of his life, then yeah, go nuts, I guess. What about you just give him the middle name, as is traditional, and, and maybe go for some sort of different name, like Neil or Nigel is a first name. Neil Neville Neville. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I like it. It rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It really does. Speaking of uh, the Nevilles, and specifically Gary Neville, um, we had a petition launched today. Amazing. Every day we're about to do an episode, and I think I'm running out of content. Someone does something. Uh, and that is several fo- uh, former footballers launched a parliamentary petition calling for an independent regulator in English football. Uh, it was an open letter that launched the petition, undersigned by uh, several former footballers and you know people involved in the industry. Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, Rio Ferdinand, Gary Lineker, amongst others. Loads of other footballers. There were loads of journalists as well getting involved. Um, and the basic text, I'll just read it out so, so I get it right exactly. Um, and the petition called for the government should use the recently established fan-led review of football to introduce an independent football regulator in England to put fans back in the heart of our national game. This should happen by December 2021. Like a referee, an independent regulator would safeguard our beautiful game impartially. This doesn't currently exist. An independent regulator could protect the game against another attempt at a Super League or other efforts to put money ahead of fans. Water companies, energy providers, and the media all have an independent regulator. Football matters to millions and should also have a regulator of its own. So this is a really, really interesting thing. It's taken off. They're calling for it to happen by December of this year, which is obviously very soon. And at recent checking, I checked it about midday today, it had about 82,000 uh, 82, signatures, which is important because for anyone listening on the UK, once a parliamentary pol- uh, petition has reached 100,000 signatures, it's considered for debate by parliament. So just to interrupt you there, actually, the last time I checked, it had about 112. So well, it's, well, there you it's, go. It's, it's, it's ticked over. Yeah. So it, it will be debated in Parliament. The government will respond. Um, and yeah, this um, this also comes uh, about a month after the government announced they would be conducting a fan led review of UK football, um, which will be, and I quote, wide ranging in nature and will examine the potential for changes to ownership models, governance, how finance flows through the game and how to give supporters a greater say in the running of the game. So again, as you mentioned, kind of big changes seem to be happening. Hopefully the push in the right direction. Um, I had kind of, I guess, I guess I want to, I want to bounce kind of first thoughts and second thoughts off you. And my first thoughts were great. The better these clubs can be managed and stopped from doing what they want to do, the better. Mm -hmm. The second thought that I had, and maybe a slightly more, I don't know, cynical one, I just thought to myself, does this give UEFA too much power? If, you know, clubs are now just unable to have any sort of, like, bargaining chips in saying, I don't want to be a part of of what it is that you're creating. Because I also don't think that that's trending in in the right way either. Uh, I I think that the two separate issues i think that the 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 independent regulator would be acting in the interest of the fans which on occasion might align with uefa on occasion it also might not um it might you know stop things like a breakaway super league happening but there are other actions of recourse to deal with uefa um that could be you know suggested and implemented by by this regulating system but they'll they'll have no power over uefa because they're they're a domestic regulator They'll, they'll have no power over UEFA, but what I'm saying is is that just because they have the power to stop Premier League teams breaking away and forming a Super League, it, that's not the only action of recourse you have against UEFA. There are other things that these teams can do, potentially under the remit of this regulator, that would still be able to keep UEFA in check. I think UEFA is also an issue that needs to be addressed, but I don't think that this would make that issue worse. I would just think, in much the same way that I don't think the Super League, um, you know, saying that UEFA is bad means that you like the Super League. I don't think that the two are you know completely linked no true i guess i just i find it weird that uefa have been behaving so badly for so many years and getting away with it and as soon as this new thing comes along it gets shut down so forcibly and so hard when 
obviously, like it, it would lead to seismic shifts in the wrong direction for football. But UEFA, it, it's more of like a, a death from a thousand cuts than just one big hammer blow. And I think it's equally damaging in the long run. And I, I guess I'm just, I don't want to suggest that like there's anything else going on behind the scenes, like UEFA encouraging ex-players to get involved and stop this so that they can consolidate their power. But I do just kind of feel like if we want to start building these comprehensive reviews and if we want to start trying to change the game for, for the better, let's try and change all of the game. Yeah, I agree, but I th- it's one step at a time, right? And I think, you know, in, just in terms of UEFA, there's nothing that the people... I mean, I, you know, if the petition, for example, I've signed the petition, there's nothing that I, as a fan, can do about UEFA right this second. Whereas because we live in the UK and we have a parliamentary petition system, there actually is something that we can do. I mean, it was, as you said, it was launched this afternoon. It's got 112,000 signatures. So I think, yeah, let's deal with it all, but there's nothing in this very moment that can really be done about UEFA, which doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything about the Premier League clubs that tried to break away either. Yeah, true. And I guess this is maybe me kind of derailing the conversation, but it was something I wanted to touch on, which is that it, I have found it weird, the backlash against this European Super League in comparison with the backlash against, in my opinion, also very, very bad behaviour from UEFA. But you're right, yeah. it, they are independent um, topics. And this this review, this petition... They can only be good things because hopefully, you know, they will just encourage better fan participation and, and better rights for fans. Well, this is the great thing is that obviously the the verbiage of the open letter talks about how there was the Super League that motivated it. But it also talks about it's not just focused on the Super League. There was one line that reads, we welcome the fan-led government review of the game and hope it leads to lasting change on an array of important concerns, including coordinated strategies to deal with racism, supporters' representation within clubs, LGBTQ issues, ticket costs and the distribution of income. So... There is this one thing that's focusing on having a regulator to stop teams breaking away, but also just in general to make the, the sport better. And it's, it's kind of like this, what the Super League was like is it's kind of like, you know, you've, you've fallen over and you've broken your arm. So they take you in for an x-ray and they found out you've got a tumour. And the Super League was sort of like an arm break for football. And it's what it's done is it's galvanised all football fans to be like, right, this was one thing that put us in the hospital. Let's cut out everything else before it can as well. Um, and that's why I think that they're slightly separate, but also slightly, slightly connected issues. I don't think it's, you know, having a go at the English football teams is permitting UEFA to do whatever whatever the hell they want. If anything, I think it might be, you know, the mob has got their pitchforks out now. They're going to keep marching right past this place and into the next place. Yeah, well put, well put. And, and long may the changes keep coming. Long may indeed. And we've already seen some independent from this. Um, the other post-Super League changes that I thought would be good to put a, a little spotlight on is that both Chelsea and Spurs have gone uh, in very similar routes. Chelsea have said they'll allow fan representation at board me- meetings from July of this year. Um, three supporter advisors that will be picked through an election and selection process will be allowed to attend board meetings. Um, they won't have any voting rights, but you know it's, it's better than nothing. It's a good first step. And Tottenham as well are pressing ahead with plans for a club advisory panel made up of a supporters um, and the chair of that will also sit on the board um, to sort of weigh in and do things so these might be completely you know artificial and, and not really have any say and they're just sat there and if they try and raise their hand they get told to shut up but it's, it's a good sign at least it's a good sign yeah for sure and, and you hope that you know the, the more people you can put in the room that are supportive of fans the better right yeah you hope so and you hope that there's there's a level of accountability because now if they know that there's going to be a fan in the room, there's sort of less, by definition, less sort of backroom dealing. You've got that fan representative and I'm sure there's going to be some degree of sort of having to sign non-disclosure agreements, but you're going to have to come correct if there's a fan present or at least more correct. Yeah, um, definitely to an extent, for sure. And yeah, you hope that, you know, they'd have some sort of blog detailing. I guess the main thing is, yeah, transparency and accountability. The the better that can improve in football, you know, the, the more that the game will improve. Yeah, for sure. Um, shall we wrap up guessing game? Uh, yes. Um, although I confess I have not spent a, a moment thinking about it since you gave me those clues. Um, That's okay. I'm... This this is a classic player. The, the clues are so obvious. Um, I, I can even give you a hint if you'd like. If you if you're stuck, uh, this player is the second most decorated Northern Irish player of all time. He spent the majority of his career playing for Manchester United and even came through the United Academy. 
and he once paid the British papers for stealing a taxi whilst on a club training trip in Barcelona. Yeah, see, I... I I'll we, be we honest with you. have a hint, you. if you'd like. I'm really struggling to think of a Northern Irish player because I keep cycling through and I'm like, Roy Keane, no. John O'Shea, again, Irish. Um, and I know there's a player out there that is just on the tip of my... I feel like it's a midfielder. Um, Come on, you, you know this Northern Irish player, played for Manchester United, known for his antics. I'm really, like... I'm, oh, it's not... Um, um, who am I thinking of? It's not George Best, is it? George Best is the way I was trying to send you, but it is not George Best. Um, no, uh, what's my clue? Can I have a clue, please? Uh, your clue was uh, to sort of confirm, your clue was that the most decorated Northern Irish player of all time is Neil Lennon with 13, and this player has 11 major trophies. Um, See, so yeah, I was gonna, I was, I was trying to direct you into George Best, and you've, uh, in, in a slightly less satisfying way than I hoped. I thought you were gonna run into it really, really, and be like, ha ha, like t- foolhardy, like t- um, tomfoolery Northern Irish <laughs> I United know player. This one. No, do you know what? For some reason, I didn't think it was George Best, and he, I, I, that was like a, a begrudging. This is the Northern Irish player that I can think of. Um, <laughs> guess rather than a, uh, I'm confident it's him. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling. I'm going to kick myself, aren't I? Uh, would it help if I gave you another quite obvious clue, or would you rather just know who it is? All right, all right. Uh, kill me slowly. What's the, what's the second clue? So uh, I said that they're the most, second most decorated Northern Irish player of all time, with 11 major trophies. Only recently has it become 11. It was 10 last week. Um, oh, Johnny Evans? <laughs> It is Johnny Evans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're proud of that one? First try. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, finally, wrapping us up with settling the score. Um, and unfortunately now, I'm just playing for pride because you have won this season. Uh, so we will be going to a football match together uh, on my behalf. Uh, on, on, on my dime even. Um, but looking at the results this week, Newcastle Man City, uh, neither of us saw this one coming, but I thought it would be a high-scoring game, so I take a point there. Um, similarly, Leeds 4-0 Burnley, uh, but you take it there by thinking it was a high-scoring game. Uh, Southampton Fulham was a classic one, right? Just like, they'd got to the score, and I was like, stop. Both teams stop scoring now. <laughs> you so stop right now. Southampton made it 3-1, so I only got one point instead of the three. Yeah, you I think then it was 2-1 at half-time, wasn't it? Uh, it was 2-1 up until like 75 minutes, I think. Oh, sad. Uh, but you then did uh, get three points by predicting the most Brighton score in the world for Brighton, 1-1. One, one. Um, but then that didn't help you because I got four in a row with Crystal Palace, Aston Villa, uh, predicting it closer than you. Um, Spurs versus Wolves, predicting it closer than you. You'd predict a Wolves win, actually. Uh, West Brom versus Liverpool, uh, I had got uh, closer to that as well, with, of course, West Brom putting in a really surprisingly good performance against Liverpool way too late in the day. Um, and then Everton-Sheffield, a real upset, um, but I got it closer because I thought Everton would win by less. So that is 6-4 to me, only for pride, but you know what? I'll take it. Well done, Cam. Yeah, it's a, that's a gutting loss for me. I'm, I'm hoping to try and score as many points as I can on you before the end of the season. But I really worry that maybe that, that's allowed me to be a little freer with my decision-making. Realistically, was Everton going to beat Sheffield 4-0? Maybe no. <laughs> what you're doing is you're, you're doing what Manchester City did against Newcastle. You've won the league, so you're just like, I'm going to play Scott Carson in goal. <laughs> and Scott Carson was a bad decision, much like many of mine were. Thank you for holding my hand during... Uh, guessing game and I doff my cap to you for setting the score this week. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think that about wraps it up for it this week. Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much and thank you to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. And... Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron MacDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.